0: Hello, and welcome to the second season of Looking Up, a Unity podcast, a podcast for women by women. I am Paramita Chatterjee, and I have been with PayPal for over 12 years as an HR and talent leader and a veteran member of Unity. On this podcast, we are unpacking some of the most important issues that women face at work and beyond. I'm so lucky to be joined by my esteemed co-host, Rachel Simmons. Rachel is a New York Times best-selling author executive coach and a lifelong educator
1: and I love practical learning with humor and authenticity and we have got all three in store for you on this podcast I'm so excited to partner with PayPal to have these conversations and connect with women around the globe so buckle up we have got a lot to talk about Speak
0: up so you can hear
1: We are thrilled to welcome longtime PayPal friends and professors Brad Johnson and David Smith to Looking Up. First, a note about both of them. Brad is a professor of psychology at the United States Naval Academy. He's a faculty associate in the grad school of education at Johns Hopkins University. He served as a clinical psychologist at Bethesda Naval Hospital and the medical clinic at Pearl Harbor, where he was the division head for psychology. He's an award-winning mentor. He's received the Johns Hopkins University Teaching Excellence Award, which is no small thing. He is also the author of more than 130 journal articles and book chapters, and he speaks around the globe on topics of mentorship and cross-gender workplace relationship. David Smith, his co-author, and dare I say wingman, is a former Navy pilot, which is an amazing fact about him, and is also an associate professor in the Johns Hopkins Carey Business School. So, Professor Smith commanded a squadron in combat. He flew more than 3,000 hours over 30 years, including combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's a sociologist trained in military psychology and social psychology, and he focuses his research in gender, work, and family issues. He is also the author of numerous journal articles and book chapters and speaks around the globe on topics of mentorship and cross-gender workplace relationships. Now, before we get into it, I need to say everyone should have a copy of your book, Good Guys. It is one of my Bibles. It is such an important book. And for those of you who don't know about this book, it is the first book to provide a research-based and practical guide for how to be a male ally to women in the workplace. And it is filled with firsthand, relatable accounts from men, from women. It's got tips for getting started. It's reasonable. And it's an easy read. It's a fun read. And we're going to be talking about their book today. So welcome, Brad and Dave, to Looking Up.
2: Thanks, Rachel. Great to be with you both.
1: Awesome. Paramita and I are thrilled to have you here. Why don't we start Dave, as we like to do with every guest, which is just tell us your story. How did the two of you decide to write this book?
3: Wow. Yeah, that's a great story. And, you know, and I think it ties in nicely with our why do we do this work around. Focusing on gender equity. And I think this is an important question that we get from a lot of audiences and especially a lot of women. You know, Brad and I started our collaboration together, gosh, almost a decade ago. And we were both teaching at the Naval Academy. We were both professors there together. And, you know, I think one of the things that we noticed early on in our collaboration was we had a connection, both in terms of our research, some overlap there, and what we were seeing in the research for both of us in different areas but also in our personal connections to this work. And I I think both of them are important in terms of our motivation to continue to do this work and our dedication to it. But one of the things that I think both of us drew on very quickly from the research was really the fact that in career developmental resources and relationships like mentoring and sponsoring and advocacy, like as Brad's research focuses on and a lot of the gender in the workplace issues, we find a lot of these systemic inequities, the solutions to them from an organizational perspective tends to be focused back on the minoritized group, in this case, women, which is great. You know, we need to advance women. We need to have programs that support and to help break down some of the barriers there. But one of the challenges with when you put a women's leadership program or a women's mentoring program is that men look at that and go, well, there's nothing there for me. There's no place for me. There's no role. There's no function, which is the opposite of what we need. We need more men engaged in doing this. So to think about how do we engage more men doing this work, Brad, I love to reframe this as a leadership issue that where we as men and women, we all have a role and a function in doing this work. So we set out to think about how do we engage more men specifically in the mentoring and sponsoring area and our first book, Athena Rising. And that book came out in 2016. Uh, Brad and I were busy speaking uh, out there to lots of organizations about the mentoring and sponsoring. But of course, about a year later, Me Too became kind of in the news and widespread around the world. And it really changed the landscape of the conversations we were having. And more broadly, beyond mentoring, sponsoring, but more broadly, how do we show up as allies in the workplace? What does that look like? What do women tell us they most appreciate? They'd like men to be better at, do more of. And so that led us down the path of doing the research for good guys and thinking about how do we bring this all together and doing that work. But Brad, you want to tell them a little bit about how we did the research for that? Yeah,
2: yeah. So people, I think when they see us, Rachel and Permita they immediately think, oh, great. I see the mansplaining coming. These two guys are going <laughs> to tell women what they need in the workplace. And we realized that was the wrong optic, right? And so our entire methodology involves going out and interviewing women across professions, across industries and asking very behavioral questions. What does it look like to you when a guy really shows up as an effective ally, as a mentor, a sponsor? What do these guys do? Can you give us those behaviors? Can you give us examples so we can essentially compile them and then give them away to men uh, in terms of how we can show up and be more effective?
1: I kind of feel like some really good swag from the Good Guys Movement, could be like a T-shirt that says "Not Here to Mansplain." Yeah,
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Like
1: especially right. when you're coming in to do research, like I could get super behind yeah. that. Uh, so yeah. anyway, yeah, that's awesome, <laughs> Brad. Let's stick with this. So, what did you discover about what it means to be an ally? Like, I'd love to hear your definition of allyship, what it looks like in practice, like how long does it take? Is it painful? Are there (laughs) side effects that you can share with our listening audience to allyship? Yeah,
2: boy, there's so much there. And maybe I'll tackle a couple of those really quickly, Rachel, and then Dave jump in. But let me actually begin with the side effect question. No one's ever asked me that, Rachel, I love it. I think this is something we don't talk about enough. There are side effects for better allyship, for engaging with women more deliberately, mentoring. And here's the hidden secret men who do this benefit. We're always thinking about how women benefit, and that's great. They do. We can show that in the research evidence. But men benefit, and no one ever talks about that. So men who do a lot of this have better EQ. They have better communication skills. They have wider networks. They benefit in all kinds of ways. And by the way, men who are doing this work really well right now, are the kinds of men who are advancing to executive leadership in their companies, right? So it's good for your career. So I just wanna get that on the table. This is not just about helping women. This is about us men experiencing all kinds of benefits too.
1: And their families probably like them more, yes. and they have more friends, yeah. <laughs> right? Like you're probably just right. like a more likable dude when you do you, this.
2: I, you're right on because I don't, you know, that EQ, you know, the humility, the generous listening. I don't check that at the door when I leave work. Right? I get to take that home. Makes me a better partner, a better parent. There's all kinds of dividends here, in terms of just the three big buckets. Maybe I'll cover the first of the three, and Dave can mention the others, but. The first one we found, the interpersonal. And this is the easy lift for men, but a lot of men struggle with this. So, this is how do I show up and hold myself accountable in relationships with women, right? That I work with. And, you know, this includes a number of these interpersonal skills that I think can feel mysterious for men. Like, how about listening, dude? I was shocked how many women told us in interviews. Men don't listen. You know, they'll listen just long enough to fix me or fix my problem. They think that's what I need, but they don't generously listen. They don't really listen to sounding boards. How about not making assumptions about her because she's a woman? How about just noticing if she got invited, you know, or is she included? Is her voice present where it really should be present? So, all of those interpersonal things, that includes, by the way, also passing the friend test with women. This means never saying anything behind her back that you wouldn't say directly to her. If she hears anything that you said about her, it should be positive. You should have her back. So all of those interpersonal things were one big bucket, and we can certainly talk more about that.
3: Yeah. And a couple of the other ones that Brad mentioned, the other aspects of allyship are public allyship. And this is the part that you know a lot of men told us in our interviews that gosh, this is really the hard part of allyship. This is where I really feel like I'm putting some skin in the game and maybe accepting some sort of personal risk or something along the way, because now it's not just holding myself accountable, but now I have to hold others accountable. And the minute you make that public, right now I'm holding people on my team accountable, my leaders accountable. That really feels like you're putting some skin out there and you're really doing some of this work. And and that's all about the public advocacy. And so this can include the everyday things that we do in, in terms of advocating for for people who don't look like us, for. doing the great sponsorship. So beyond the mentoring, which is wonderful, we've got to do the sponsoring part of this. Whether you're doing it as part of your mentoring or you're doing it separate, you have to do the sponsoring aspect of it. And just being a great raving fan for these women that you work with, the talented women. The last part of this that I think is really important, and this is probably really the hardest part of all of this, is systemic allyship. And this is where, at the organizational levels, we begin to understand how biases really operate within an everyday practice that we have. And you know, throughout out all the employment processes of hiring and recruiting and promotions and advancements and pay as we see where bias operates to create a systemic inequity like the wage gap or a lack of representation of women in our organization and the senior leadership ranks that now I got to do something about it. I got to figure out how do I change that practice so it's more equitable so everybody can thrive.
0: You both talked a lot about doing, right? But for me, doing comes after knowing. Mm. And the reason I'm saying it, because one of my most favorite part of your book where you talk about how certain parts of women's life are not even visible to men. They don't even know that parts exist. So what are some of the things you think men do not see that women experience? And how can we get men to see what may be completely invisible to them?
3: Wow. Do we have like the rest of the day to talk about this? Uh, (laughs) And and I think it's a great point and one that we love to, as you said, we love to emphasize because I think one of the challenges, as you said, in the very beginning is that there are lots of men who believe in gender equity and gender equality. I would say most of them. Most of the men today listening to this podcast today are going to tell you they believe in gender equity. But if that's the case, why aren't we getting there? Why aren't we moving faster? Why aren't we seeing the outcomes and the results that we're looking for? And part of it is we don't necessarily see or we have an experience, we don't have an awareness of how people who are different from us have experienced the workplace, mm-hmm. and, and that includes women. And so for many men, this does start with developing awareness, or we love to talk about how men need to sharpen their GQ, right? their gender intelligence in this case. And that's going to take, hey, you've got to do, back to Brad said, a lot of listening. We've got to open our ears and really just close our mouths for a while and really listen and understand and then ask the clarifying questions about this because if we're ever going to begin to close this gap in terms of us, hey, I believe in it, but am I actually taking action that's achieving those results? I've got to be able to do that. Um, There's another part to it too. I think that's really important that the action piece we think is critical to this, that allyship has to be action-oriented. But when we start to take actions, we're not going to get it correct every single time. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes along the way. And we just have to accept that that's part of the journey as we do it. But you're going to learn along the way too. And you're going to get feedback and you need that feedback to begin to close that gap again. And so we need to be open to the feedback. We need to listen to it, learn from it, and then share it, share it, start to create that community of allies.
1: Yeah, and I love that Dave about just like we're going to make mm-hmm. mistakes. Mm-hmm. Like let's like our default position is we're not going to do this perfectly. Yeah. And it it just makes me think about questions like that I think are very useful for allies like what am I not seeing that you are mm. seeing? How might I be wrong right now? Right? What is not available to me that is available to you? And that kind of openness to realizing that you might actually not have all the information and that that is the essence. In some ways, that error is the essence of being an ally because the whole point is that we have to be willing to see or to rethink what we thought before.
2: Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's a
0: great point, Rachel. And speaking of error, you actually made me think there are lots of misconceptions around men being allies to the women. So what I'm really interested in hearing, what are those misconceptions you have heard?
2: There's so many. Again, we need an hour just to talk about this, Paramedic. Dave and I, we encounter a number of these. And let me just start with a few. When men hear allyship, one of the things that it triggers is that whole... Heroic journey, man script, right? <clears throat> okay, yeah, I got this. I'm going to go charging in and rescue women. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to protect them. And nothing, you know, could be more undermining ultimately than that kind of take on what allyship is. So we got to push back on the, all of the rescuing and doing things for. I think that's a huge piece of it. And, you know, too often when Dave and I are talking about allyship with men. You can just see the look in their eyes. They're ready to throw on their ally cape and go go charging into the workplace. So it's not that. It's also not showing up at like a women's network meeting or a women's conference. and then, you know, charging in and, and trying to take over, right? Try to speak for women about what they need or become the leader of the movement or you know, whatever it is. I think a lot of women, of course, find that really aversive. And and it really is sort of the opposite of the kind of co-conspirator, collaborator, partnership sort of model that we think of. This has gotta be doing with, and you really, as a male, are not gonna have a sense of how you can best contribute until you've just been quiet and listen and learn. Yeah, so go to that Women's Network event, definitely go. But be quiet, just just take notes, learn. And then after you've done that for quite a while, now go to some of your female colleagues and say, I've really been learning a lot and I appreciate this. What could I do that would be most helpful to support this effort or this movement? But I'm not gonna presume that I have a sense of what that is.
1: And, you know, just to say, I think that really requires men to engage with their own gender norms. We're often trying to teach men to think about what women need or who women are. But also, like, if you're going to learn to be quiet as a man, then you also need to connect with the fact that you've probably been valued and rewarded for being a talker and being a fixer. So it does require, I think, some of that deeper engagement with what did it mean to you to be a man in the first place and how is that not serving you? as an ally.
3: And it's beyond just, it's interwoven with the idea of who we are as leaders too, right? Sometimes men, we can't separate that. The fact that, you know, as a leader, what that means for me and being a man is that I'm a problem solver. I'm a get it done and take action oriented, you know, focus. And we can leverage some of that, right, for good, but we have to be careful and rein some of it in and be aware that in some cases that can go awry on us and, and what that might look like. And But there's a whole host of those gender norms that we need to be careful about, too, that also kind of hold back us applying and doing the right things that we need to be doing in this cases. And, and some of that is is just concern about, well... If I become a more public advocate for women or, or if I'm confronting or disrupting things that I see around me, somehow I'm going to get penalized for that. I'm going to get the wimp penalty as uh, some men or I'm going to lose my, my man card or, you know, violate the bro code. All of those things that men know, or, you know, just kind of deep down, whether they believe it or not, they know it you know, is another question, right? And what they do, it does tend to hinder our ability to apply and do the right actions at the right time.
0: So speaking of that, David, you just made me think about one of my most favorite quote out there on allyship. This is from Lily Tomlin. Uh, you, you know her as an American actress, but she's so much more than that, uh, just acting. She's a writer, singer, producer. So she said, I always wondered why someone doesn't do something about that. And then I realized I was that someone. So once men go past that, that they know they are the someone, they can be the ally and kind of have the gender intelligence you spoke about. What are some of the few everyday acts that they can do? They're realistic for men to try on. Yeah.
2: boy, there's a ton of them. And so I'll give you a couple and maybe Dave has some other favorites, but you know, let's just take you know, we're gonna, I know uh, we're gonna be in another episode talking about meetings, but let's just say in the workplace, there's a really biased, sexist, maybe verbally harassing event, right? And and it happens in public. I see it. I hear it. In spite of the discomfort I had with what I just heard, all the research on bystander effect shows that most of us say nothing. We don't disrupt it. And women, when they disrupt, pay a price, right? They get pushback. They're viewed as prickly and they get all kinds of penalties. Men pay no price, right, if they actually will say something. But as Dave said, they're afraid often. So within just three seconds before bystander paralysis sets in, you have to say something. And if you're not sure what to say, how about just saying, ouch, right? Just disrupt that sexist comment that just landed on the table. And here's a funny thing that happens. When you do that, All those other men in the meeting who also found that inappropriate but didn't say anything, they suddenly become unglued, right? When one person will disrupt, suddenly the other guys chime in, yeah, that wasn't okay. So I can do that. I can disrupt. I can say, ouch. Then next step, I need to own it, right? I need to not say, hey, uh, Rachel's in the room, man. You can't talk that way. No, I need to own it and say, hey, we don't do that here or I didn't find that funny, or I don't know what you're talking about. That's a bad stereotype. So I can do the disruption. I can own it. And in doing that, I'm going to help other men become unglued. So I think that's a biggie. But other everyday
3: favorites, Dave? I think one of the places that surprises a lot of men when Brad and I come and talk to them about allyship and you know, we get them all motivated and they're excited. They're like, all right, I'm going to sling on my ally cape and then we're going to jump in and save the day and then say, hey, well, just one second before you do that, let me tell you one thing you have to do before you go into the workplace and do this. You've got to be an all-in ally at home first. And they're just taken aback when they hear this. and They're like, what do you mean? And we're like, well, if you're partnered with a woman and we know that what the research shows us is that She's probably doing two to three times the amount of domestic responsibilities, the caregiving, today, the homeschooling during the pandemic, all of that, that compared to their male partners. And it's not fair, right? And it disadvantages women in terms of, again, most of us are in dual earner, dual career couples these days. And it's really hard to balance things in the workplace if we're not doing it together at home. And it's not just the everyday tasks it's not just doing the dishes it's also the emotional labor the cognitive labor that goes with keeping lists of keeping track of things of planning event i mean it goes on and on with those things and that's a lot too and if for the guys out there if you haven't ever tried to take on some of this emotional cognitive labor i would tell you that it's harder than the, the actual physical labor of some of the other things that you might be doing and guys are like yeah but i feel like i'm already doing that i feel like i'm an equal partner at home already and i'm like but how do you know so maybe go home, and if you're not sure, and ask your partner and say, hey, am I doing my fair share? Am, am I being an equitable partner and ally here at home? And when she gives you the feedback that, hey, here are some places you could step up your game a little bit. Would love for you to be able to do this, this, and this. Don't push back. Just take it on and, and say, okay, all right, let me see where I can start. And, and I can start getting involved in doing that work. And this is really important. It's important for her career, right? One, we're supporting her career because we're, we're doing our fair share at home. But it changes behavior back at work. So when we go back into the workplace now, suddenly I have responsibilities at home and a commitment to people at home, my partner, my kids, and I've got to do things. So it's going to change my behavior. And so when it's my turn to take the kids to the doctor or stay home and take sick leave because I have a sick kid at home, when I walk out the door, I've got to make sure that I also don't slink out the back door when I do it. I don't go hush, hush and quiet because again, there's a lot of stigma related to caregiving and, and these domestic responsibilities. We're supposed to be these ideal workers in the workplace. No. A lot of the male allies that we talked to for the interviews for our book, they said, no, you need to do the opposite. You need to leave loudly. Announce to everyone that you're leaving. Hey, I got to go early. Sorry, I can't make the meeting. I'll pick up with you guys tomorrow and we'll go from there. And because that begins to normalize these things that that we do as men, it sends a signal for junior men too, who are looking for this. And it also sends a signal to women and it destigmatizes this kind of work. So being able to talk about doing it at home and then being able to talk about it and show the action in the workplace is going to begin to balance things out and really make it much more equitable for everyone.
0: As a brown woman, I have to ask you this, because Rachel knows I always bring in the underrepresented lens into this. So do you think that men tend to act as allies to people who are similar to them? You know, do the similarity bias play out in allyship? So if yes, then where does that leave women of color and our LGBTQ plus colleagues in the whole realm of allyship?
3: Great question. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, one of the things is we focused kind of broadly on gender in writing these books. One of the things we noted really early on was that these skills that we focus on just gender, they translate very nicely into other forms and dimensions of diversity. And so thinking about how In many ways for men, these are gateway skills. So if we can become really good from a gender perspective doing these things, then we can become really good at doing this for other dimensions. And one of the places we saw that was at the intersection of race and gender. And so thinking about women of color, and we saw lots of examples of that about how men had these different aha moments where they learned something, where they thought they were, again, doing great ally actions, but they weren't taking into consideration the intersection of race. And they were like, oh, wow, you're right. I can't do that. And what they found was that they could, again, they could, using their learning, their developing awareness and the listening, they could really reapply these in a very different way. And so intersectionality, I think, is a great way to approach this.
1: So before we let you go, I'd love to hear from you about what organizations are doing well when it comes to systemic allyship. And I think you you know, we were talking earlier about, sure, it's all well and good when a man is an ally to individual women here and there, but there is a bigger enterprise that we that every organization needs to undertake. So tell us about who is doing or not maybe who, but some examples of systemic allyship.
2: Yeah. Really important. And we see a number of different things going on in terms of best practice. Number one on my list are senior men in a company who talk about this and make it very authentic, very clear, very transparent. This matters to us in the company. It matters to me personally. Let me tell you my personal narrative. This is why I care about it deeply. And this is why it's crucial for our business. Look at all the evidence. Look at the business opportunity. If we get more talented women on board, And if we actually advance him into significant leadership roles in the company and get to real gender balance, we are going to be leading the industry and it's going to be good for us in every way. So this matters. The other thing I see is the accountability. So got to have that clear message. But if you're not holding people's feet to the fire, and I'm talking about the everyday manager who's running hiring committees and doing uh, pay considerations, if those folks are not mitigating bias, if they're not really accountable to increase the number of women in meaningful leadership roles, you're just not going to see the improvement. So got to be clear and you got to hold people accountable for this. And last thing. Let's have some great grassroots organizations of male allies in our company. If you have a big women's network or women's ERG, why not invite men to partner with you and let them kind of lead the conversation with other men on how we can partner and be better collaborators to achieve more equity at work.
1: Brad, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a wonderful uh, conversation. We are also excited that you'll be joining us for another episode talking about inclusive meetings. We are grateful to you for everything you are doing on behalf of women and promoting gender intelligence. Uh, thanks again for being with us.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you both. I speak up so you can hear me Cause it's who I am, who I am, that's
1: right Cause it's who I am
0: Looking Up, a Unity podcast has been brought to you by PayPal. Developed in partnership with Rachel Simmons and produced by Wheelhouse Media. Special thanks to Jocelyn for her song Speak Up.